turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. We have uh, finished a series in uh, Haggai and then Nehemiah, in which we looked at a little bit indirectly at the book of Ezra, and now we are uh, continuing on in, into the Old Testament book of Esther. And I will uh, read Esther chapter 1. Uh, please encourage you to follow along with me as I read. Let's Prepare our hearts for the reading of God's word. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a royal banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the, queen's, uh, when the king's attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marsena, and Memucan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces, of King Xerxes, for the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This day, this very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. 
Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king. Also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan promised. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own household, using his native tongue. The, the first words of the book of Esther are, this is what happened. And the reason that the first words of the book of Esther are, this is what happened, is because this is what happened. This, uh, at least from the, author, the author's perspective, uh, he is recounting to us things that happened. It is history. Now, it's uh, history that's told in the form of a story. It's literature, contains many literary devices and features, and in fact, has much theological purpose, but those things don't put it at odds with the fact that it is history. And though there are some, uh, there, there, there's lots of command to it in that regard, there are some uh, historical challenges that uh, face us that I believe have reasonable paths to resolution that we we'll, may look at from time to time. But, um, but uh, it's important to note right off the bat that the author considers this uh, to recount things that happened and that we ought to then receive it as, as things that happened, as history, because, uh, and that's important to the book because the book of Esther is about God fulfilling his purposes in history. And particularly, uh, God fulfilling his purposes in plain old everyday history, so to speak. Because in the book of Esther, you know, who's, who's the uh, most important character in the book of Esther? Um, well, it's not... Esther, she's an important character, certainly. It's not Mordecai, it's not Xerxes or Vashti or Haman. They're certainly important to the plot and to the story, of course, but they're not the most important. It's a question like this where the, the old Sunday school answer will get you far, that God is the most important character in the book of Esther, that God is the primary central figure in the book of Esther, but that bears worth mentioning uh, because, interestingly enough, as you may be aware, if you're familiar with the book of Esther, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. Uh, the main character of the book isn't mentioned in the book, and that invites us to ask why. Uh, God is the main primary central figure in this story here, in all of history, in our stories too. Um, but God doesn't make an appearance in some in an explicit, uh, obvious way in the book, right? Uh, but isn't that similar to our own experience? That the God who sometimes seems absent is nevertheless ever present. 
right? And that's the reason for, uh, that's the, the purpose of uh, the author not mentioning God. It, that's, it's to drive home his point, in fact. It, it, just sort of, you know, this sort of introductory stuff here, but not only does God uh, not mentioned in the book, but, uh, you know, think in contrast to the book we just looked at, the book of Nehemiah, where uh, the, the temple is central, uh, the law plays an important role, um, there's many, many prayers in the book, uh, many of those things are very abs- noticeably absent from the book of Esther. There's uh, no temple. There's no sacrifices. There's no mention of, uh, uh, of anyone praying. There's a mention of fasting. That's the closest we get to what we would typically think of sort of religion in the, in the book. And there's not a single miracle in the book of Esther. And I think the reason is to drive home to us the very important theological point uh, that even in times when God seems most absent, he's nevertheless present. Even when God seems most absent, he's nevertheless present, still present with his people, still working on their behalf for their ultimate spiritual Good and uh, you know the both all the the um, the post-exilic books the ones we've been looking at after the Babylonian exile of God's people um, Nehemiah Ezra focused on those uh, Jewish people who returned to Jerusalem after the exile and asks the question you know are we still the people of God and the answer is yes we still are and Esther asks the same question, but it focuses on those people of God who did not return to Jerusalem, but remained. And so here we have these Jewish people living in the, the realm, uh, it, right in the heart of the Persian Empire. And it's asking really the same question as, uh, for them. Are we, too, still the people of God? And the answer is yes, we are, even though... Uh, God isn't mentioned here, uh, even though uh, it seems like God is absent. The answer is yes, and God, uh, you know, even when he seems absent, he still is present, he's still at work, and he is always working to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. He is always working towards the coming of his kingdom and the exalting of his glory in this world, and he is always working for the ultimate spiritual good of his people in this world. Uh, but, you know, sometimes when we think of God's working— Maybe our minds are drawn, especially when we think of God working and redeeming in the Old Testament, our minds are drawn to the, uh, the miraculous, you know, the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, the conquest of the Promised Land, and even in the New Testament, the miracles and res- resurrection of Jesus. And uh, those are certainly wonderful, uh, amazing, miraculous testimonies of God being present and at work, but they are not what most of God's people in most of history experience. But nevertheless, the absence of those miraculous works of God does not mean the absence of God. It doesn't mean that God isn't at work, 
that God isn't present, fulfilling his promises, providing and protecting. And that is really what I think the main point of the book of Esther is. And really that each part of the story is understood in light of and contributes to the main point. So this is something we'll keep coming back to as we go through the book and look at its individual parts is how they fit into what's happening at the book in the book as a whole. And that God is always at work, working in, to us, invisible and inscrutable ways, ways we can't see, ways we can't understand. He's working through flawed people. He's working through seemingly ordinary or inconsequential or coincidental or random uh, events. He's working through seemingly, you know, questionable human decisions even. To bring about his promises which cannot be thwarted by the enemies of God or by the enemies of God's people. That's the main idea. And that even though God is, mentioned at, is not mentioned in the book, it is clear that the, the, from the perspective of the author, what he is trying to show is that God is invisibly uh, working behind the scenes. That it is God's sovereign hand bringing about his good plan through not the miraculous, but through his ordinary providence, the way he ordinarily governs this whole universe to work towards his goal for it. You know, these things in the book of Esther that just happened to come together just at the right time, these are all God's hand. Bringing about God's plan. Um, and, and so he's not named, but he's everywhere in the book of Esther. Ceaselessly, sovereignly, providentially working for the good of his people. And here, so here in chap, Esther chapter 1, we see this begin to, to work out. This begin to be evident to us that all the events of this chapter, even though uh, they may seem odd or may seem unimportant or may seem inconsequential, only later on and looking back do we see how central and significant, in fact, they were to pave the way for what God was going to do. And isn't that often the case? That it's at the time we don't see or understand, but then later on looking back, we can see God's hand in it, right? And one, of the, one, one writer famously wrote that God's providence is best read backwards. Isn't that true for our lives? Maybe you've experienced when uh, sometimes in life we just don't see or understand what God is doing in the moment. Maybe it's confusing. Maybe it seems like he's not there. Maybe he feels like he's forgotten about us and we might be tempted to think he has, that he's absent, that he's not present, not working, not faithful. But then, later on, looking back, we can see his faithful hand through it all. <clears throat> and God does that, I think, to teach us the... the, the, the uh, the life, the path of trust as disciples of Christ so that we would learn the truth of Proverbs 3, 5. Trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And so um, 
Let's take a look then at this first chapter and see in particular what we find here. This is a uh, first chapter really is sort of setting the scene for what will happen in the book. Um, this is where is setting the scene for where these people of God live. Uh, setting the scene for where Esther will uh, enter into and risk her life for the sake of God's people. And we see uh, for three things that I want to draw our attention to, that, that the scene that is set is a temporary kingdom and a hostile place, but that it, we, we find here an open door. And so the scene is set in the royal house of King Xerxes. That's the Greek name. Your Bible might uh, give the name in Hebrew, Ahasuerus. Uh, and, uh, but Xerxes was the king of the Persian Empire. We've seen, if you remember, Cyrus, the Persian king, who uh, was the one who uh, decreed that people who had been exiled by Babylon could return to their homelands. And that was the background for Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, some, though, as I mentioned, remained and uh, lived in other lands uh, more. And here in Esther, we see people who are living right at the heart of the Persian Empire. And this first scene is giving the backdrop for that. And the first part of our passage in verses 1 through 10, uh, 1 through 9, excuse me, uh, are meant to sort of paint this picture of a worldly grandeur that is uh, set up to impress, right? And so the first part of our passage, King Xerxes is really just flaunting his wealth. Uh, Verse 4, it says explicitly, (laughs) for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty, And then in verse 5, it goes on to describe the scene of over-the-top wealth, over-the-top luxury, over-the-top indulgence. He's flaunting his power and his wealth. There might be some historical purpose for this. He may be preparing for his invasion into Greece and maybe trying to solidify uh, the the firm up the support of uh, the provinces, uh, um, you know, consolidate support. Uh, by showing his would-be supporters that he's worthy of support, and also by showing them that he can reward them for their support. But what we see here is his his, uh, flaunting, his showing off of his, his wealth in order to exalt himself, right? Just think, think of what this, what this is. Step back and look at it. It is self-focused, self-exaltation, and self-promotion in order to gain loyalties. It is materialism and the flaunting of what he has. It is overindulgence and uh, not denying any desire in me. It is an overly sexualized culture. So ancient and relevant, right? (laughs) I mean, it sounds like our culture, right? It sounds like a lot of the things that are prevalent in our experience and that breed misery, depression, discontentment, greed. 
But here's the irony that I think the author would certainly have in mind and that those reading after the fact should see. Where's all Xerxes' splendor now? It's gone. For all the splendor and glory and majesty of his kingdom, where's Xerxes' glory and majesty and splendor and wealth and power now? It's on the page of an ancient history book. It's rubble. It's nothing. It's gone. And uh, for as grand and powerful and as important as it seems, and surely he wants to convince people it is, he's deceived. Because there is only one kingdom that lasts. There's only one kingdom that is eternal. And it isn't my little kingdom and it isn't your little kingdom. That, let's be honest, we often spend much time and zeal and effort and energy building, protecting and promoting, gaining loyalties to and exacting vengeance on detractors from it. It's not my kingdom. It's not your kingdom. It's not any earthly political power. It's not the U.S. of A. It's not a political party. But it's only Jesus' kingdom. Only Jesus' kingdom will endure. Only Jesus' kingdom is eternal. And those who align themselves with his kingdom will find their hopes eternally fulfilled. And those who oppose themselves to his kingdom and find their hope and identity in any other kingdom will find their hopes buried in the lost rubble of earthly kingdoms and dreams and values and hopes that don't last. Jesus' kingdom, Jesus who didn't come like Xerxes, praise God, right? That Jesus who didn't come in self-serving, self-seeking, self-promotion and self-exaltation, but came in humility and came to serve and give and sacrifice for the life and good and redemption of others. He's sort of like the ultimate Xerxes foil to Xerxes or any other earthly king who lives according to the values of this sinful and rebellious world. And Jesus' kingdom is the only one that lasts. Jesus' kingdom is the only one that in the end will stand. And so whatever earthly kingdom we find ourselves in, the kingdom that we align ourselves with, the kingdom that we find our identity in, the kingdom that we put our hopes in, and the kingdom that we live according to its values is Jesus' kingdom. We live in earthly kingdoms as followers of Christ in this world, but we don't live according to them, according to their ways, according to their wisdom, according to their values, but we live the uh, apostle Peter uh, addresses his audience in the New Testament in, a, in a, a phrase, elect exiles. And I think that is a great uh, 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 phrase by which we can gain an understanding of our identity in this world, just as, you know, the people, God's people in the book of Esther were exiles. We ourselves are exiles. We are elect exiles. Exiles means we are not at home in this world. But we are pressing on towards our heavenly home and living according to it in the here and now. 
We are exiles, but we are elect exiles, chosen by God and kept and watched over and preserved and protected by a king who loves us and will be victorious. A temporary kingdom is what we see. Second, what we see in this uh, scene setting of Esther chapter 1 is a dangerous place. And uh, again, this, um, you know, setting the scene for where, the, where God's people are living, right at the heart of uh, the Persian Empire, and setting the scene more specifically for where Esther would uh, find and enter herself, enter into the royal household of King Xerxes. And the idea that this is meant to uh, cast as the backdrop for those events that we'll see later on in the book is that this was not a safe place for the people of God. Persia, the king of Persia, held all the power, and God's people had none. And that the royal household of Xerxes even was not a safe place to be. And we see here this in the episode with uh, Xerxes and Queen Vashti, that uh, we see even the expectation that even the queen was expected to obey the king absolutely. And we see the consequences of her disobedience to the king's whims and commands are, uh, could be severe. And that being the queen didn't insulate one from danger, but in one sense brought someone in closer proximity to the source of danger, this king who had absolute power and wielded it in a uh, dangerous way. The royal household into which uh, Esther would enter and live was not a safe place. The Persian Empire, which we will see becomes a threat to God's people, was not a safe place to be. And so that's the focus of uh, the, the remainder of our passage, 10 through 22, where we read of this interchange between King Xerxes and Queen uh, Vashti. And, um, <clears throat> and what we see here is that in um, <clears throat> the, the scene that is set is that uh, it helps us to appreciate later on down the road Esther's courage. And the high stakes that she'll face as she becomes queen to this man that we see here in chapter 1 is a powerful but insecure man who uh, used his power to control others and who ruled unpredictably, who made decrees at a whim, <laughs> who, who responded uh, in fits of anger, who responded with impaired judgment and did all of that towards self-serving ends without concern for others. Again, same seems, sounds ancient and irrelevant, right? Xerxes isn't alone and it isn't only an ancient problem where power is misused and abused towards self-serving ends. And so what we see is that the royal household was a dangerous, hostile, godless place ruled by a self-seeking tyrant who used his power to exalt himself. In, Zer in verse 10, Xerxes dem demands Vashti to come and display her beauty to the crowd. And for whatever reason, we're not told why, Vashti refuses to do so. Um, although, you know, we're not told why. Maybe we could 
try to make a guess or maybe we could sympathize with her refusal. Um, Xerxes, remember, is showing off his power and here with one simple decision of Vashti, it backfires on him. This man who's sort of, uh, you know, and the narrator, I think, is inviting us to see through his power, right? Because this man who's flaunting uh, and, and uh, his power and has this sort of foolish pretense of having sovereign power, he now can't control his wife. And probably he's embarrassed. And then we read he becomes furious with anger. And the results are that he deposes her, he banishes her from his presence, and then he, will, he goes on to replace her, which we'll see then in chapter 2, and then even goes even further to sort of universalize the, the, the response here uh, to make a decree that throughout his vast realm in all parts of the kingdom to each province in its own script and to each people in their own language, he makes this decree that uh, women should respect their husbands and uh, that husbands should rule over their wives. That respect where it's unearned now would be demanded. And it's kind of laughable, right, for a couple of reasons. First, this decree can't be enforced, right? But second, uh, in the reasoning of why they should make this decree, they're afraid that people will hear of what happened, And the response is to proclaim in every language, in every corner of the kingdom, what happened. (laughs) So it backfires on him again. His response to this ensures that everyone's going to hear about it with a decree that's really meaningless. It's, it's, you know, not going to be able to be enforced. And I think the narrator then is inviting us into some of God's Psalm 2 laughter at the folly and foolishness of those who set themselves up in pride against God. And the question that comes to our mind, I think, is aren't we glad that not only we live according to a different kingdom, but we serve a different kind of king, right? You know, to Xerxes, I think what we see in this uh, interchange here, Vashti, Uh, His queen (laughs) is just another person to use for personal gain. Just another possession that he wants to flaunt before drunken men in order to build up his self-serving ego. And again, we aren't told why Vashti refuses. Uh, I don't know that we can necessarily make a hero out of her, but we are, uh, we, we can probably sympathize with her not wanting to uh, obey this request of Xerxes, right? And I, I think this is important to take a minute to think about because um, Vashti has at times been held up as a negative example of an unsubmissive and rebellious wife. But it seems more, what she does, seems more to be in the category of a righteous refusal of an unholy demand by an ungodly man. And that Xerxes is the more obvious negative example here. And because this edict then universalizes what happened between Xerxes and Vashti to every marriage in the realm of Persia, we must consider that in the kingdom of God, things work differently, right? And in the New Testament, certainly, wives are called to submit to and and respect 
their husbands. But husbands are not told to demand that respect. That's a command given to wives, something they are to freely give. And what husbands are called to do is not demand it, but they're commanded to live in a way that is respectable and respect-worthy and to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? By giving himself up for the church, for the church's good. And, and so how do Christians, Christian husbands, then exercise their authority in the home? How, do, how does any Christian, in fact, exercise their authority in whatever role of authority they are given? Well, they follow the call and example not of Xerxes, and not of the, the values of a sinful, rebellious world, but the call and example of their king, Jesus. Our king who humbled himself, though he had all power and all authority, he humbled himself and emptied himself and gave of himself. He washed feet. He took on upon himself willingly the lowest of the low task of the lowest of the low servant to wash the feet of his disciples. Our king who criticized his disciples' worldly ambitions towards worldly power and being great and instead taught them that the kingdom way of exercising power is to serve others. And that the way to the pathway to greatness in Jesus' kingdom is to make yourself the least. Our king who had all power, power to make Xerxes' power look laughable in comparison, who had all power, nevertheless did not use it to serve and exalt himself, but to serve and save others. And whose appearance in this world was not marked by outward kingly glory, but a crown of thorns and a cross. Xerxes used his power to serve and exalt himself. And where is Xerxes now? Where is Xerxes' kingdom now? Jesus used his power to lay down his life for the good of others, to save and serve others. And now Jesus has been exalted to the highest place and given the name above every name. And when our king calls us into his presence, his invitation is for our good to receive his goodness and grace. Aren't you glad that the king we serve, the king who calls us into his presence, is so different from the kings of this world, so different even from ourselves? So a, a temporary kingdom, a dangerous place, and finally an open door. And I, you know, I will say, having said that, the main point of this uh, chapter isn't a lesson in marriage, but it's our, to draw our attention to the political ramifications of what's happened here. That now Xerxes in verse 19, we're told, plans to replace Queen Vashti with someone better, we're told, <laughs> a new queen, And this will just happen to be a Jewish girl who will now be positioned in a place of influence where she can now protect and deliver her people. Later on in the book, if you're aware of the story, a crisis will arise. And what we see here in chapter 1 is long before that crisis ever arose. God was already putting things into place 
to bring about his deliverance. And isn't that what we see with the gospel itself? With God's delivering of us and with God's working in our lives now. You know, this odd scene between Vashti and Xerxes, we don't know why it happened. It doesn't necessarily seem particularly significant to the people of God, but it turns out to be, right? It's all part of God's plan where God seems absent. He is ever-present, faithfully working for the good of his people. And we who have faith in Christ and have been made the people of God by his grace, we are the heirs of that promise. That promise of Romans 28, which I think is the, the, the New Testament summary of the book of Esther. That God works all things, all things, for the good of those who love him. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks that we are your children through Christ. That you have brought us into salvation through what Christ has done through your grace. And we thank you that because of that, we can know that you are always present with us, that you are always working on our behalf, always working through all things, even confusing things, even in ways we don't understand, always working in all things for the good of those who love you. Help us to trust in that promise and to find confidence in this world, in your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.